Thank you for downloading this podcast from BJOG. My name is Emma Crosby and I'd like to welcome you to the podcast for the February 2023 issue of BJOG. With COVID-19, we've made it to the life raft. Dry land is far away. This is a quote from Professor Mark Lipsitch from Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health in April 2020. COVID-19 continues to cast a long shadow over women's health. In the United Kingdom, its impact on gynaecological cancer care has been devastating. For example, an additional 860 cervical cancers are predicted in England over the next three years as a consequence of reduced access to cervical screening during the pandemic. Delayed symptomatic presentation of gynaecological cancers caused by the bottleneck in primary care and patient reluctance to attend secondary care has also been observed. Cancelled theatre lists and reduced high-dependency unit capacity meant that as many as one in five women with gynaecological cancer received modifications to their treatment that rendered their management suboptimal. The combined impact of these factors on long-term patient outcomes is yet to be fully realised. For women with non-malignant complaints, poor access to gynaecological services hindered timely diagnosis and treatment. In this issue of BJOG, Zabiri and colleagues describe a significant decrease in the number of patients with symptomatic uterine fibroids presenting to emergency care in France during the first lockdown. Whilst health-seeking behaviour returned to pre-pandemic levels over time, there was no evidence for a rebound demand for services lost during 2020. The authors postulate that for women with symptomatic fibroids, lockdowns were missed opportunities for improvements in their quality of life. As we emerge from the pandemic and enter the slow recovery period, growing waiting lists for specialist and allied healthcare services, combined with the longest non-urgent elective theatre list in UK history, continue to prevent women from accessing the care they need. By contrast, some studies indicate that the pandemic had a negligible or even positive impact on women's reproductive health. Rusconi and co-authors report reduced preterm birth rates in Italy during the COVID-19 pandemic. The authors suggest that ring-fenced maternity care services during this period may help to explain their findings. They hypothesise that working from home reduced exposure to air pollution and other respiratory pathogens, enabled more rest and adoption of a healthier diet, and that these environmental and lifestyle factors played an important role in reducing preterm births. Sisti and Joseph warn that association is not causation and caution must be exercised when interpreting population-based COVID-19 studies, since all potential sources of bias cannot be controlled for in epidemiological analyses. Campos and co-authors show that Brazil's COVID-19 pandemic had no significant impact on outcomes in gestational trophoblastic disease, despite the difficulties patients encountered scheduling appointments, particularly ultrasound scans. There was a trend towards a higher gestational age at diagnosis and delays in receiving treatment, however, which may impact longer-term patient outcomes. Global health inequalities have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Achieving parity demands financial investment and political will, as well as innovative solutions. Embedding research within the clinical setting intended for its implementation is fundamental to maximising its potential to transform outcomes for women and girls across the world. Hussein and colleagues warn of possible harms from translating research findings from high-income to low-income healthcare settings. For example, delivering term breech babies in low-resource settings by elective caesarean section may expose women to unacceptable surgical risks. Yet, widespread adoption of this policy followed evidence for safety from high-resource settings. In a similar vein, whilst fetal movement awareness may not be an effective strategy for reducing stillbirths in high-income countries, its utility in low- and middle-income countries has not been systematically evaluated. Outright rejection of this simple, low-cost intervention could deny women and their healthcare providers the opportunity to identify babies at greatest risk of adverse outcome where high-tech alternatives do not exist. They argue that more research is needed before simple interventions are discarded and new solutions are adopted, particularly if organisational constraints prevent their seamless integration into existing healthcare systems. Whilst data accrue that fully describe the damage caused by COVID-19, it is important to consider interventions that protect women's healthcare services against future pandemics. We must ensure that national restrictions do not prevent access to high-quality maternity, reproductive and gynaecological services again. Offering evidence-based surgical technologies that reduce post-operative complications and duration of hospital stay can support a higher throughput of patients at a time of bed shortages. In this issue of BJOG, Ola reflects on the relatively slow adoption of minimal access surgery in gynaecology compared to other surgical specialties. He calls for gynaecology surgeons to adopt the three R's when considering the best approach to hysterectomy. Retrain in minimal access surgery or refocus their surgical practice and refer the patient to suitably trained colleagues. Retraining poses a considerable challenge given the negative impact of COVID-19 on surgical throughput, with trainees requiring extensions to their formal training programmes to achieve surgical competence, with obvious consequences for future workforce planning. Lifestyle interventions have the advantage of being cheap, safe and community-based and are essential to maintain the health of the nation, especially during future pandemics. In their umbrella review and updated meta-analysis of randomised controlled trials, Martinez, Vizcheno and co-authors found that exercise in pregnancy reduces the risk of gestational diabetes mellitus, or GDM, with supervised 45-minute low- to medium-intensity exercise interventions started in the first trimester and continued throughout pregnancy, reducing the risk of GDM by 39% in pregnant women without overweight and obesity. More research is needed to assess the safety and clinical effectiveness of exercise in pregnant women with overweight and obesity. Patient-centred care must be the primary focus of our future healthcare model to ensure best outcomes for everyone.
Steer and colleagues challenge the practice of relying exclusively on fetal heart monitoring to drive decision-making in intrapartum care, inviting clinicians to consider other dynamic factors that predict fetal well-being, including suspected fetal growth restriction, tachycystole, meconium in the amniotic fluid, as well as fetal heart rate abnormalities. Page and co-authors conduct a randomised controlled trial of LASER versus SHAM for genitourinary syndrome of menopause and fail to find a significant reduction in the most bothersome symptoms overall, but note that some women may benefit. This highlights the importance of developing predictive biomarkers to avoid the harms and healthcare costs of ineffective treatments. In his mini-commentary, Robinson cautions against the use of laser for genitourinary symptom of syndrome of the menopause outside the context of clinical trials. Whilst it is important to embrace new technologies and treatments, we have the responsibility to first do no harm and provide evidence for their effectiveness prior to routine clinical implementation. Novel biomarkers for diagnosing, monitoring and predicting therapy response are important for directing healthcare resources appropriately. Who and colleagues describe plasma lipid biomarkers for the accurate first trimester prediction of gestational diabetes mellitus that are effective independent of ethnicity and BMI. Home-based vaginal or urine self-sampling could provide a viable approach to cervical screening during lockdowns and may encourage uptake amongst those for whom convenience, embarrassment and fear of intimate examination are current barriers to screening. Exploiting opportunities to conduct healthcare visits remotely to reduce footfall within hospitals and avoid direct contact with healthcare professionals will be important in future pandemics. Self-sampling also has the potential to dissolve geographic and socioeconomic health inequities in cervical cancer burden and could help the World Health Organization achieve its ambition of global elimination of cervical cancer by the year 2030. Such approaches are more important than ever if we are to mitigate the predicted surge in cervical cancer cases that are the unfortunate legacy of COVID-19. Thus, when thinking about the future of healthcare for the women we serve, I invite readers to reflect not only on how far dry land is away from us, but also to consider redesigning its topography to maximise its potential for improving patient outcomes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from BJOG. We have been reporting the best research in women's health since 1902. We are keen to hear your views. Tweet us at BJOG Tweets. You can find more podcasts at www.bjog.org.